You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on this Friday, June 21st, where we are back with our truth-telling bombshells that you will not hear anywhere else, certainly not to this degree. And I know that's why you all tune in. You all wait for this show every day, and we try hard. We aim to please. But we are thankful it is Friday because, man, I'm exhausted as anything. Uh, I'm just telling you, it's always brutal at the end of June when we're waiting with bated breath to see the future of our republic when the Supreme Court comes out with their blockbuster cases. So it's like, you know, I have a certain modus operandi where I have to read, talk, and write my articles and commentary at the same time. But, you know, unlike some others in this business... I try not to fact, fax it in, you know, oh, let's just see a tweet and comment on it. I really try to delve into the things I'm working on. So anyway, it's tough when you want to monitor everything and then be able to give it over properly. First, you got to understand it yourself. And then when you have to sit for two hours and just have your brain in a court opinion or several of them and then write my opinion on the opinion and then other news breaks. <laughs> it's just this has been a brutal week. So, I mean, between every minute, very important things breaking at our border, on the interior, on immigration, things that we um, we talk about all the time. You have this court in Massachusetts creating a right for an illegal alien not to be apprehended to be deported in a courthouse. You have all this stuff going on in Iran. I'll be very honest with you. I'm very much behind the eight ball on that issue. I still have my same overarching philosophy that this is one of the few times where we do need to get involved. It's not a matter of nation building or owning populations. It's naval and air force holding the line strategies. Um, but you know, even a lot of our own people are rightfully fatigued from all the stupid things we've done there as well as we have our own border that's so problematic. So it's very tough to get even some of our own crowd to be excited about that, and I understand it. So next week, we're going to have Colonel Steiner on on the show. He's our resident expert on Iran. Email me your questions. Let me know what you want me to ask him. I just don't have a good lay of the land, you know, what rumors are true when Trump tweets out, I was about to blow them up, but it would have killed too many people, so I didn't do it. I don't know what's really going on. So my rule is I decline to to uh, comment on anything that I don't feel I've re- I really know enough about, I, I, that, I, that I feel that I've given it the... or given you the dignity of properly investing my time so I could speak with with a proper voice on it. I know we have, you know, people listen to the show that are liberals. They want to get the other point of view. And, you know, some some of you might even be haters of mine. But I think one thing you could appreciate is I'm not just going to just spout anything just from doing it for three seconds. And and it's going to be the same thing with the court opinions. 
there's a bunch of things that I get the impression are going on, but I didn't get a chance to read some of the court opinions because I spent time reading others. And it just it's just been a crazy week. So I'm gonna have to put Iran on a shelf, even though that's that's a big story today. Um, I try to prioritize what I think others aren't gonna give over that you're not gonna be able to get elsewhere, but are important. Other people do good work on on Iran and um, I feel that you can get, but some of the perspective on the courts, uh, you know, you're not going to get anywhere else, not to this degree. But yeah, I mean, there is a lot of news. Every day, there's about 10 other examples that the president could take to the American people and say, look, even if asylum were in the Constitution, it couldn't override our national security. It couldn't be used as a strategic weapon for the cartels to do all this stuff. Go to Drudge's headlines. You know, sometimes I make fun out of people that just look at Drudge's headlines. But on immigration recently, he's really been on on message. They're not BS articles, the ones he puts up. They are real. There's other stuff that's not on Drudge, but the ones that are on there are true. They're all a problem. Um... And there's a lot to say about all of them. It's a lot to say about all of them. And, you know, you're just going to have to watch for my articles. I have one out today on immigration. But uh, Trump deporting at slower pace than Obama. More than 100,000 gotaways from agents this year. 17 wander through military bombing range. Surge of Haitians crossing into Texas. By the way, Haiti has a cholera outbreak, which is extremely contagious. Um, extensive details of border security available online. It was hacked. Underground robots to probe tunnels. I mean, there, there, there's a lot going on here. And the sad thing is, when you have such a dearth of a conservative movement, it's I'm just frantically flailing out. Normally, I feel overwhelmed just how to combat what's going on. Today, in all candor, I'm overwhelmed and even... <laughs> understanding and being able to give over everything that's going on. I just can't keep up. And, you know, because of the merger and the priority changes here, our staff is very limited, very, very limited. I don't even have Jordan Schachtel anymore. So I don't have that foreign policy, national security component where I could assign him, you know, Iran stuff. So, you know, we're going to have to put that on the shelf. Lots of very important questions going on with state powers on immigration, judges, sanctuary states, good county officials pushing back against sanctuary states. But today I want to talk about the courts. This is the home run derby of the Supreme Court session where they release all the cases. And there is so much to say about the role of the courts about the trajectory of the courts, about the individual justices on the court. My hope is that at the end of the day today, I can properly give over to you in this hour a full understanding of why there is a, it's a complete myth, why it's a complete myth that we have a conservative Supreme Court We are nowhere near a five-person majority on the Supreme Court that matters. This whole business of, oh, let's just appoint better judges has failed. The court situation, you can't just look at 
any one Supreme Court case, but a panoply of Supreme Court cases, as well as cases they don't take up, and the lower courts put together give you a picture that proves our longstanding thesis that those of you in our graduate program here, the, the veterans of the conservative conscience, you'll get this right away. But I want to reiterate, so you probably know what I'm going to say, but for those of you who are newer, I want this to be the show that will demonstrate my thesis, why the judiciary is irremediably broken. It's a one-way street and a dead end for conservatives, for true originalists, both in terms of the understanding of the role of the courts and in the actual merits of what the court rules on as it relates to constitutional provisions and statutes. And, you know, I'm going to go through, I guess, three cases, mainly two, and bring in other recent things as supporting evidence to talk about this. But let me just first give you an overview. Let me give you the two-minute nutshell of what I see happening in the courts. Um. Just putting putting all the observations together. Remember, politics is an art. It's not a math. Oh, we have five, they have four. Oh, Trump appointed 100 lower court judges. It doesn't work that way. It's a train of, of observations, understanding all the elements of politics, the elements of law, the intersection of the two. That's what Politics is an art. And this doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. And you're going to hear a lot of people think, oh, we're winning the courts. And what has happened the last two days, and it's going to continue into next week, has demonstrated my point of view over and over again, more than ever before, in the two cases that I'm going to present to you today. But here it is in a nutshell. You have to start with the fact that cases don't start with the Supreme Court. They start with lower courts, first the district and the uh, appeals court, circuit courts. And most of the big important cases are usually national in scope. The left is able to form shop it to where they want to go. And if they lose, they could go to another place. They only have to win once. And immediately we are told that no matter the issue of standing, whether it's a real case of, of case and controversy that should get standing, no matter how egregious the ruling is, in violation of the Constitution and the court's own precedent. I mean, a lower court violating a Supreme Court precedent. Um, no matter how disruptive and harmful that would be to public policy, boom, a common sense policy is put on hold until and unless the Supreme Court comes in and overrules it. Now, you and I both know that is not the system of government we adopted, and the other two branches have ample authority to push back. But our system right now Right or left doesn't view it that way. So you have to wait on the Supreme Court to be God. So they have an endless number of cases they could throw at the wall. Catch me if you can. Let 1,000 immigrant lawsuits bloom, to quote a National Immigrant Law Center attorney. Here's what happens. On the Supreme Court, you have an ironclad for liberals. See, a lot of people think, oh, we have five to four, but it's not really true. It's four to one to one to one to one, okay? No one's going to present that to you like that, 
but that's really what it is. Or I could really, if I would oversimplify it a little bit more, it's four ironclad liberals, one ironclad originalist in Thomas, another pretty close to a good ironclad originalist in Gorsuch, except he's horrible on a lot of criminal cases, which are very important, because he's just into this overly due process for criminals 50 million light years beyond what our constitution and founders believed in. He's very good originalist on a lot of things, but like he's so into protecting criminals that it just goes out the window when it comes to that. And, and then even where he's good, sometimes he'll go as far as Thomas, but often he won't go quite as far. That is a very, I'm not just saying that very flippantly. That's a long-term trend I've observed from his entire time in office. So generally, he's been very good. Then you have Alito, who, it's very weird. On He's the he's polar opposite of Gorsuch. On criminal cases, he's as good as Thomas. Except even he, but, but on the other hand, he's not nearly as bold... And he's too respective, uh, respecting of existing precedent, which is garbage. And he won't go as bold. So sometimes we're going to see, even in a criminal case, if it's tinged too much with politics and race, he'll go the other way and he'll find an excuse for it. He'll be very tepid about some of his rulings. I've seen that with some of the immigration rulings re- re- recently, the pre-app case, where he said... He ruled against the Ninth Circuit granting these bond hearings to illegals, but he said they do have standing. Just the merits there are wrong. And it's not true. As Thomas said, there were three statutes kicking the courts out of, out of, uh, out of judging the case, and he said they could judge the case. I've been very disappointed in Alito, but there's one case that he was good on today. I don't know if we're going to get to it. But that's Alito. And then... Kavanaugh is essentially Roberts, where he's 100% political. And, you know, he'll often rule with the left on a lot of things. And even in the things he's with the right, he'll write it as narrowly and as tepidly as possible. And the more politically tinged the case is, the more it's going to color their thinking. And, and that's another important thing. The courts, these guys are extremely political. They're not mechanical machines looking at the law. I would argue Thomas is that. He just doesn't give a rip about the politics, but the rest of them do. And they're no different than the conservative political movement. Why is everything a one-way street in politics? The left will fight for even their illegitimate things, and we won't fight even for what's legitimate. The left will engage in civil disobedience even at a state level against immigration law. We won't enforce it when we have the law and precedent on our side, even on a federal law. It's because they believe in their stuff, we don't. So on a legal sense, when when political cases come to the courts that have broad political ramifications, it's the same way. The Republican appointees are just as scared as anything and don't think that doesn't color their outcomes. It definitely does. To varying degrees... Very much so with Roberts and Kavanaugh, to a certain extent with Alito. Gorsuch is 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 pretty bold, but you know he has his limitations. He also has his just very super libertarian quirks. And you're left with Thomas. 
So it's very true that often in a lot of cases, you can get a five to four favorable outcome in that case, in, in a given case. But what you what you have is a supermajority of left-wing extremists on the lower courts, particularly the courts where they're going to. And then at the Supreme Court, you have four, one, 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 two. And in each of those numbers, I'm getting closer to the left with them. So the two is Kavanaugh and Roberts. They're closer to him. What are the ramifications of that? A one-way street and a dead end. Meaning, meaning. There's a couple of principles you have to understand. And they're all going to be borne out from these cases. And I know this was quite a long two-minute introduction, and I apologize. It just shows my inability to, to explain it concisely. But, but hopefully this is helpful. Before we get to the Bladensburg Cross case, the um, Mississippi uh, death row conviction... Uh, capital conviction that was overturned today in Flowers v. Mississippi, and perhaps an immigration case. The thing you, you need to understand is, the, w- the way I explain it to people is that the panoply of cases that are up at the Supreme Court are so radical, they should never even be a case Most of the time, they shouldn't have standing. They are so divorced from our Constitution. These policies should never be put on hold, and the lower court should never have the ability to do it. The Supreme Court will, because of Roberts and Kavanaugh and sometimes some of the others, they'll allow most of the lower court bad stuff to stand. They'll selectively pick the most extreme iterations of that given issue, whether it's immigration or, you know, display of religious symbols or whatever it is. And they'll take it all up. And then they'll overturn those cases. Now, what's the what's the advantage of overturning those cases? They're so narrow because it doesn't foreclose the 99% of the other avenues. They're going to come back at you with the lower courts. And then some cases, they downright do rule with the left. So really, 100% of these cases, we should be winning. 100% of them should be much broader. <clears throat> and 100% of them should be summarily dismissed and remanded often without even taking them up. But what has happened is because the left controls the legal profession, the law schools, the litigation groups, and much of the lower courts, and many of the Republican appointees are still bad, it's skewed what the equilibrium is. The way I explain it to people all the time is, I said this to um a uh, a show host in Florida today. Uh, he had me on the show in, in Fort Myers. And I said, look, Drew, I think you're ugly. So I'm going to sue for the right to punch you in the face. And I go to a district court and he's like, yeah, yeah, you have the right to punch him in the face. And it goes to the appellate court. Yeah, yeah, you have the right to punch him in the face. And then there's a bunch of other things like I have the right to take your lunch money. I have the right to humiliate you. I have Whatever, all sorts of things. And the Supreme Court allows the other cases to stand. I have the right to take your lunch money. I have the right to spit on you. They allow that to stand. They don't even take it up and reverse it. Right? That's a silent acquiescence that a lot of people don't realize of the Supreme Court to really bad things. 
the most extreme thing is I could punch you in the face. So they take it up. And they beard stroke. Well, you know, this is like a 50-50. Uh, good, bad, maybe, I don't know. In oral arguments. And then they come down with the opinion. And they, they rule, I can't do it. But they're like, yeah, you know, this is a bridge too far. I mean, there, there's valid points brought up on both sides. There's very sensitive things going on on both avenues. But but this case, the circumstances really are such that, you know, it doesn't foreclose, you know, your ability to go after the guy in other ways. But but this way, you can't do it. That's essentially the Bladensburg Cross Pyrrhic victory that I wrote about yesterday that I'll describe in more detail. Is that a victory? Is that a victory? Right? This is what people don't realize. The fact that these cases are even allowed to get this far, and the fact that the Supreme Court backhandedly upholds the lower courts in many of these, and so narrowly, like, they legitimize these cases that, yes, you have standing, yes, you could bring things up, but here the circumstances are different. It, they start right again in the lower courts, and they come back in 50 other angles. But there's another important thing going on, too. Remember, it takes four, meaning we don't, the, the, the left has four ironclad votes. But the right, not only do we not have five votes, we don't even have four ironclad votes. Meaning it takes four votes to grant certiorari, to, to bring up an appeal, to accept an appeal from the lower court. If you want to appeal, if you don't like the lower court's opinion, whether it's a state Supreme Court or a federal appeals court uh, below it. And what happens is the left still has an ironclad thing that – so it's a one-way street. We, we talk about how bad the lower courts are, but sometimes the lower court – the courts get it right. Sometimes they dismiss the cases and say, no, this is, this is garbage. Then the left is the one appealing to the Supreme Court, and boom, they take it up. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, okay, fine. They have the ability to take it up, but we could overpower it on the actual ruling because we have five. But no. What, you have a dynamic where, where Kavanaugh and Roberts, and sometimes depending on the issue, the one or other two, they wouldn't necessarily take it up, but once they do, it becomes a 50-50 issue. It becomes legitimate. Do I have the right to cut your balls off or not? Like, it's 50-50. Who's going to win? And because the cases are so radical and the majority of the actual cases the Supreme Court does take up, they are going to have to side with the conservatives. They so badly don't want to look like they're political that they find every which way to either find a way to side with the left in a given case, partially or fully, or when they're siding with the right, really water it down. That's the pattern we're seeing on many, many different cases. So, so here's the irony. It's not just that the Supreme Court won't take up bad lower court opinions. They'll often take up good lower court, the few good ones there are, and even reverse it. I know that you know that 12-minute monologue there was in two minutes, but I hope it gave to you at least a general picture of why we are nowhere close to reversing anything. All righty. Just taking a drink from my big gulp there. Losing my voice here. Um, so let's get to the specific cases. Bladensburg Cross. Okay, so this is 
American Legion, the American Humanist Association, right? Where a bunch of atheists said that this 100-year-old World War I cross memorial for World War I veterans has to be removed because it violates the Establishment Clause. Uh, it, it establishes a national religion or or a state religion. In this case, it's, it's the state of Maryland. It's the county of Prince George's County. Um, so it must be removed. And the district court and the appeals court ruled with them, the Fourth Circuit. So in order to understand this case, and we warned you this, we saw this coming a mile away, albeit I thought it would be written by Roberts or Kavanaugh. I was even more disappointed that it was written by Alito in such a tepid way. Um, you have to understand another case, and there's really a bunch of these, but let me give you a case I wrote about almost exactly a year ago. Um, almost exactly a year ago. So, what happened a year ago was the Fourth Circuit, again, District Court Fourth Circuit, ruled that um, Rowan County, North Carolina, cannot open their county council meeting with prayer, like, you know, many bodies of government do, just like the Federal Congress does. Okay, so now, remember that States have even more latitude to do things like this, as we're going to talk about, than the feds. And yet the feds, right, Congress, they've been doing this since the first day of Congress, having a guy open up in prayer. And you're telling me a county government can't do it. The most radical thing around. Um, Not only that, it was done just a few years after Town of Greece v. Galloway. Town of Greece v. Galloway, where... The Supreme Court, written by Anthony Kennedy, none the, you know, no, no less of a figure than Anthony Kennedy, said it's totally fine. The prayer is totally fine. Like you know, this should have been put to rest. Again, this is important in understanding why this ruling is so narrow and won't put to rest all of the striking God from the public square is because we've already done this in Town of Greece v. Galloway, and it didn't put this to rest. And indeed, like, they win. They win in district. They win in appellate court. They win all the time. They win all the time. Because, again, it's important to remember, Democrat judges, even at a lower court level, are as bold as Clarence Thomas at a Supreme Court level in overturning precedent. Meaning what only Thomas will do and only at a Supreme Court level because he's on the Supreme Court, their guys will do at a district court level. So you'll have 200 years of case law where the Supreme Court said it's the most settled law that the courts have no way to get involved in the right to enter and remain in the country for aliens and yada yada. And district judges say, screw it. I believe they have rights. Done. Right? So even when you write a categorical opinion at a Supreme Court level, they'll overturn it. Hence what we see with Heller all the time. The Heller opinion is essentially overturned. All the lower courts are limiting gun rights left and right. And the Supreme Court lets them get away with it, of course, because of the dynamic I'm talking about. So this case of Rowan County, like all these nerds on the right, they're like, yay, we won the case of the cross. Right? All these nerds, what they don't understand is the Rowan County case. The Supreme Court rejected it. They refused to grant, you know, the our side an appeal. 
So what that means is that the Fourth Circuit stands, even though there was a circuit split because a Sixth Circuit case in, I don't know if it's Kentucky, Ohio, I'm forgetting which state, maybe Michigan ruled the opposite um, in, in a similar case. So even where there's a circuit split, they will not bring it up when it would benefit our side. Right? It's very important to know that because there's a number of cases recently we saw where the Supreme Court has taken up liberal requests for appeals, even when there's no circuit split and it was unanimously the other way and they take it up and downright overturn it. They just did that with a criminal alien conviction today. In, um, if I don't get to it, the case is uh, Rehive v. United States. R-E-H-A-I-F. So again, one-way street, dead end. It's unbelievable how, how, how right I am in my thesis. So we lost religious liberty in this country. We lost the Judeo-Christian character of this country. The notion that, that opening a, a thing with prayer is, is, um, is unconstitutional. That is the Supreme Court has allowed that to stand. Now, to their credit, so Thomas dissented from the denial of cert. He ripped into them, and Gorsuch joined it. Right, He signed off on his dissent. I was very perturbed at the time. I said, wait a minute, why didn't Alito sign off? You know, we know that Roberts wouldn't agree. Kavanaugh wasn't on the court yet. I guess that was still with Anthony Kennedy. So we knew we didn't have four votes, but you would think we had three. Why wouldn't Alito? Well, now we have our answer. Here's the shtick. It's the same thing they do with immigration. Here's the shtick of, you know, the non-Thomas Gorsuch component of the so-called Republican appointees. They'll take up the most egregious case that the left lodged in the courts and they'll overturn it. Meaning if I overturn the less egregious case, it, it automatically allows the other cases to fall. But if I only take the most the one with, one with the most exigent circumstances, like, okay, this is so absurd what the lower courts did, it doesn't foreclose anything below that threshold. So they made it clear if you're um if you're a you know litigator for ACLU atheist type of groups, you take a look. Okay, the Supreme Court is totally fine with the fact that lower courts could rule it's unconstitutional to open with public prayer. Again, no nobody is coerced to do anything. Nobody is forced to do anything. But you know you could close your ears. You could walk out. You could do what you want. Just don't not allow the guy to. Open open up the prayer. It's freedom freedom of speech. So um basically Alito writes an opinion, and I, I warned you of this. I warned you guys of this. That it was gonna be seven to two. And that's not a good thing, because that's gonna make it even more narrow narrower to get um Breyer and Kagan on board. Okay? And Alito wrote the opinion, and it was it was mealy mouth. It was worse than I thought. So the thing about crosses and things like that is, it, it's it's worse than any of these other things getting God out of the public squares because it's literally an inanimate object. It literally doesn't do anything. It just sits there. There's no like government official doing anything. It's just it's it's an inanimate object. Moreover, as we noted many times, you should never get standing. You should never, ever, ever get standing. Meaning, even if it would be a violation of the Establishment Clause, 
Where's your grievance? What? What? How did it harm you? I'm offended. That's not a a court can't rule on political questions. That's a sensitivity you deal with in the local political level and in the county council, whatever. You know, the, it's a homeowners association, whatever it is. That's what you're going to deal with if you have a population that's mainly non-Christian and they don't want it there. You know, you deal with it at that level if you feel you need to deal with it. If you feel you want to deal with it, but um. You should never get standing. Courts don't have that power. They don't have that power, period. Not at all. They just don't. But that's the first thing that Alito should have said. And that would, A, it would properly define the role of the courts. This is not just just about religious symbols. This is about so many other cases that are so important that we talk about all the time where third-party organizations get standing. How do you get standing? So to begin with, this would have properly aligned the role of the courts in many other cases that you can't just sue political issues in court. You have to have an individualized, valid grievance. That's tangible. Okay? And then on the merits, on the merits, it's very simple. As Thomas said, two things, two things. Number one, even a valid establishment clause violation. In other words, they get up there and say, we are making this a Presbyterian. Presbyterian is the official religion. Okay? Baptist, whatever. I hate to break it to you, that's not a violation of the Constitution for states. Remember, this is a county. This is not a federal thing. It's only a violation for the federal government because, indeed, nine of the 13 colonies had official religions at the time of the Constitution. So that was the whole point. They were saying, look, we're adopting this, but just know we're not doing this for the federal government. Now, I'm not saying in this day and age it's a good idea policy-wise that I want to see that. I don't think any, uh, any of you want to see that. But it's technically not a constitutional violation. And Thomas made that clear. And that's a very bold thing to say, but it's true. That's an originalist. That much Gorsuch didn't join with, or he didn't address it. I don't I, he, I don't think he's willing to go on record with that. I don't know what he believes, but that was Thomas's dissent. Or I'm sorry, concurrence in judgment. Then they made it very clear. They called it, we're just concurring in judgment. They, they, they used that word because they really didn't like where Alito and the majority there, where they were going, Roberts and Kavanaugh. So really, it shouldn't apply. Number two, you shouldn't get standing. And number three, none of these cases come anywhere close to an Establishment Clause violation. Establishment Clause means one thing, to coerce that the government says this is a Christian nation, so therefore... I am coercing you to wear a cross, to say prayer to Jesus. That is an Establishment Clause violation. None, none of these cases brought before the court ever are violations of that. They're just not. That just doesn't happen. I'm Jewish. I have never in my entire life been been forced to do anything Christian. Okay, in any way, coming close in any way. James Madison made very clear what it is. August 20th, 1789, he said when they were debating the 
you know, Bill of Rights, he said, the purpose of the Establishment Clause is, quote, Congress should not establish a religion and enforce the legal observation of it by law, nor compel men to worship God in any manner contrary to their conscience. Okay? None of this does that. If a guy wants to open up a county council prayer, uh, Lord Jesus, yada, yada, it doesn't compel anyone to do anything. Okay? That is okay. This is exactly what Alito should have written. But that's not what he wrote. Now, I don't know if it's because he was assigned to write it. He himself would have gone deeper, but because he knew that Roberts and Kavanaugh wouldn't, so therefore... He just, you know, wrote it to rope everyone in. He knew he didn't have the votes anyway. I don't know, but I'm very, getting increasingly concerned about Alito's tepidness on a lot of things. But he made it very clear that basically it's just because the cross is 100 years old. It's tradition. It's history. It also has some sort of secular meaning, some symbolism, divorce from the Christianity Um it was understood at the time in a certain way, so it might have been morphed. We have no way of knowing. It is very clear if you're a good lawyer and you took a look at this opinion, it's just like Masterpiece was with religious liberty, where they said, Jack Phillips, you don't have to bake the cake, but that's only because this case is crazy. They trapped the guy. They're obnoxious to him. They were mean to him. Oh, so the ACLU said, so any other case, we could do this. It's a similar thing. Um, Justice Breyer wrote in his concurrence that under Alito's majority opinion, quote, a newer memorial erected under different circumstances would not necessarily be permissible, right, under this approach. Now, some might say, well, Daniel, that's Breyer's reading of it, but but Alito and Kavanaugh Roberts, look, maybe if another case would come before us, we'd have instead of seven to two, five to four, they would agree with us. But the lawyers and the lower courts will absolutely read the opinion the way Breyer did. Heck, they're reading Breyer's dissent and deciding with that and, and Heller. So they're certainly going to read from his concurrence here that that it's not only totally upholding the lawsuits against prayer, but even inanimate objects. They're saying you get standing and it could violate the Establishment Clause if it's if it's totally new. Now, by the way, I'm sorry if you hear noise in the background and try to edit it out. Um, the kids are off of school. It's between school and camp, so all three are home all day. So that's a tough time of year. But anyway, this is what I mean when I say when the lower courts go broad and they'll throw a hundred lawsuits at things that should be completely illegitimate. And yet the Supreme Court, even when we win, even A, when they take it up and even when we win, which is not a guarantee, a lot of these cases they don't take up and we lose if they do. It's so narrow. I am honestly shocked. I thought we would foreclose all lawsuits on monuments, Ten Commandments. Like Even I thought that. I mean, I saw this a mile away. I've been warning you all year. But our side takes it as a victory. Oh, we won. But again, is that a victory? You can't start at the Supreme Court level when you're analyzing it. Everyone's like, oh, Danny, you want the Supreme Court to do more? I don't want them to do anything. I don't want them to, to, to get involved. The courts have no right to get involved in this, but the lower courts did. So if we're going to, you know, really, I mean, you know, they want to rip up a statue. I don't care. Let them go and do it. They don't have the authority to do it. You would need the executive branch to do that, and they should just shouldn't do it. I don't care. But if our entire side is going to say we need the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court justices seem to believe that they're king too, so then act like it. But this opinion of Alito's very clearly does not foreclose all these arguments against even uh, 
even even monuments if they're newer. You know, if you erect a Ten Commandments uh, outside of a thing, I mean, you better believe they're gonna come back at you, and and they're gonna win in the lower courts most likely. And um, this this is really the problem that everyone is missing in the Bladingsburg case. Now, this is really where Gorsuch shined. He had a terrific dissent you might want to read explaining rules of standing, why you should never get standing, never, ever get standing in such a case. Um, you know, again, we're, we're running out of time, and I want to get to this, some of the other cases, so I'm not going to read it, but there's just terrific lines in there. I tweeted a lot of them out. It, it's a good understanding of what standing is. Not just this case, but it's worth reading. And you know, here's here's the money quote, really, um, from from the end of Gorsuch's dissent, which I think is very important here. I'm just going to try to get it. Um, and again, I keep calling it a dissent, but it's almost like a dissent because well, he is dissenting on on standing. I, I want to make it very clear. I called this. One of my criticisms of Kavanaugh, it was literally in this case. It was an establishment clause case with an atheist uh, having a lawsuit against something. I forgot what it was. I forgot the case. I wrote about it at the time. And I said, Kavanaugh ruled the right, the right way on the merits, but he made it very clear that they do have standing. Well, standing's the whole thing. You're not ripping out the cancer. Then they're going to come back and the, all the lawyers are going to you know, split hairs and say, well, the rationale in that case doesn't apply here. And he started again. It's the same thing with immigration. If we had five Thomases, they would say illegal aliens have no standing done. And then on the merits, they'd also be more um, categorical that it's just, you have no right to this. You have no right to that. You, you have no right to enter. You have no right to remain here unless you have a, a claim to being a citizen or, or granted a green card or whatever. That's it. Done. Gone. They're not going to do that. We're not anywhere close. We have one vote for that on all our cases. And then between Alito and Gorsuch, and this is very frustrating, they're almost like a seesaw, where one is good, Alito is good on criminal law, Gorsuch is bad, where Gorsuch is generally bolder on most other issues, often... Alito, even if he's with us, won't go as bold. So often we have no more, sometimes we have just one, often we have no more than two, and then in the best case scenario, three for what we want to do, and that's it. While the other side is an ironclad four to always take up cases. But I think um, just to read the end of, of Gorsuch, He's explaining what this case didn't do. And, and and there's so... Look, I could talk about this case all day, um, but I want to wrap it into one thesis with, with another case. Nor have we yet come close to exhausting the potential sources of offense and federal lit- litigation lemon, the old stupid case invited. For what, about the, for what about the display of the Ten Commandments on the freeze in our own courtroom or on the doors leading into it or the statues of Moses and the Apostle Paul next door to the Library of Congress or the depictions of the Ten Commandments found in the Justice Department in the National Archives or the crosses that can be found in the U.S. Capitol building. And all that just takes us mere steps away from where we sit. In light of today's decision, we should be done with this business and our lower court colleagues may dispose of cases like these on a motion to dismiss rather than enmeshing themselves for years in intractable disputes sure to generate more heat than light. But that's exactly what what happens with even the victories. 
When the left wins marriage, gone. Definition of the building block of civilization, gone. When our side, even when we win, it's not a win. It's upholding 90% of the illegitimate lower court stuff. And standing is huge. If you rule that they have standing when they really constitutionally do not, you are siding with the other side. One-way street, dead end. Um, so again, this was just Gorsuch and, and, and Thomas. I don't know if Gorsuch is quite as bold that the whole establishment clause doesn't apply to states, but that's what that. Then you had, That was yesterday. Then you have the case today, Flowers v. Mississippi. Now, I, I wrote about this in 2016 in a case, um, Chatham v. Foster, I think, Foster v. Chatham, where there's a growing trend in general of criminal law. And we talk about this all the time. This ties into our general political discussion on criminal justice, jailbreak. We need to get stricter. Of course, we're all for due process. The due process is built in to the Constitution plus illegitimate case law from the Warren era that added and added and added and added and added to the point where you can't convict anyone anymore, even the most heinous people, even with the best evidence. There's, I was going to say six ways from Sunday, but it's really much more than six ways. It's hundreds of ways for a defense attorney to get out of things on 50 million technicalities. Everyone knows that's a problem. And yet, to not just people on the left, but increasingly the people that own the so-called right legal profession are obsessed with finding even more loopholes to get off even more criminals. And more and more, the Supreme Court is poking holes in getting involved in state criminal justice where, where the courts did due process 50 million times over at the trial level, at the appellate level, at the state Supreme Court level, and they came to a conclusion based on certain facts. And increasingly, in many different ways, the uh, Supreme Court's getting involved and overturning them on, on these technicalities that have nothing to do with the actual conviction. They take existing bad precedent that is unconstitutional, giving them authority to overturn the conviction, and they keep expanding it. It's enmeshed usually in racial politics because it usually involves a black defendant. And that's another thing here, folks. And you're going to see from this case, it's another principle. I write about this as the foundation of my book. It's very easy for a bunch of conservatives to get in the room. They all say, oh, it's terrible. I want an originalist. It's terrible. The courts do what the courts do. But most of the core stuff the left does in the courts is in they have successfully enmeshed in civil rights. Because there was a time where states in the South were legitimately screwing over blacks and violating their real rights. And it required intervention. And unfortunately, that permanently killed federalism. It permanently killed the Constitution because they overcorrected and then enshrined that into the Constitution, the law, when it's not. And now they're doing it the other way around and persecuting and discriminating against whites. And just in general, making up stuff that doesn't exist. And they're destroying our system. And what the left is doing, if you look at any important question, election law, immigration, sexuality, abortion, Affirmative action and, and, and criminal law, they're enmeshing it in civil rights. The innuendo, and again, these people are very political. They're not mechanical. So our guys, certainly Roberts and Kavanaugh, 
sometimes even Alito, generally he's even better than Gorsuch, but then Gorsuch is very libertarian in a lot of these things. So we're left often with only Thomas. They're terrified of, oh my gosh, I don't want to look like I'm racist. Don't think that doesn't go in their minds. The same way Republicans do things politically because they're too scared of being racist, don't think for a minute the Republican appointees on the courts don't think the same way and don't rule and act in accordance with that. They do. So the trend here is, there's a new trend. One of the many trends is this business of invalidating convictions based on them coming to the conclusion that the prosecutors in a given case acted with discriminatory intent against potential juries in a juror pool when they do um, peremptory, peremptory, sorry, peremptory strikes. So every side of the litigation has a right to have four cause strikes, meaning that guy's a relative, that guy is related to the businessman, that guy has a, you know, there's four cause. And then you could have just um, peremptory strikes, which are just like, you know, discretionary. And, and it's governed by statute. It has always been that way. State, not federal. Each state defines its criminal law. How they do you, Some states give you 10. You have 10. And that's what it is. And yes, it, it's, it's inherently biased. You get discretionary things. And, and that's all part of the game. Now, in... Um, this case is so important in so many ways because it teaches so many lessons in understanding why we don't have a conservative courts and, and a court and the way they think. So the the backbone of all of this, all this stuff, is 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 the, a case called Batson v. Kentucky in 1986. Okay, classic case of them going against the Constitution and then radically expanding it as time goes on. And you're going to see that we have nowhere near majority not only to reverse and categorically overturn terrible, terrible bad precedents that are unconstitutional but have been successfully enmeshed and enshrined in civil rights. We don't have the ability to even get guys on the court to not expand them. And uh, and that's the case here. Flowers v. Mississippi. So the Batson v. Kentucky case basically created this right to invalidate convictions based on charges of discriminatory intent by the prosecutor and the jury selection. Remember, remember, no one's saying biased trial. You, you, you have a right to due process, a fair trial. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when they have all the evidence is clear the guy did it. There's no evidence that the actual ruling by the jury, the actual um, conclusion of the jury was motivated by bias. But if at any point in the jury selection, the prosecutor struck someone in a discriminatory way, it taints the whole jury pool. And somehow there's like this new right of like equal protection for a jury pool. This is not the defendant, right? This is a third party guy. Like, you know, we have the right to um, 
Thomas put it put it amazingly, uh, and I'm, I'm forgetting how he um, how he explained it. But he basically said that, where is this? Just somehow like you create an equal protection right to let go violent criminals based on supposed rights of, of rejected jurors. Uh, it's not a quote, but that, that was his point. He had a really good quote on that, and I just don't have it in front of me. But that that's the foundation of that case. What the courts have been doing in recent years, and, 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 and Roberts has been joining in these all the time, is that they take Batson, and then they're, they're so animated by the media circus around these cases of how racist it is, that they get the facts wrong. They're, they just, the, the standard is, is when the, the state courts, if the Supreme Court feels the state courts made a clear error in determining that, you know, let's say a state court says, no, there was no bias. So the standard is they have to show that they were absolutely wrong that A, the defendant could show the guy was struck for discriminatory reasons, and that B, the prosecution didn't show, the other side didn't show, that there were other racially neutral reasons for doing it. Valid reasons, okay? That's the standard. Now, again, the whole Batson is crap. It's unconstitutional, as, as Thomas says today, and he would totally overturn that. But they expanded the, the, the standard. They just, they just don't care. So I start off my article today with a point that there have been 783,453 known homicides in this country since 1976. Right? More than, a little bit more than three quarters of a million. I counted it up. Known. All right, that's from the FBI uniform reporting. 783,000, yet just 1,500 individuals have been executed in this country in 43 years since our black robe masters allowed us to uh, continue the death penalty in 1976. So for all the pomp and raucous around the debate of the death penalty, we essentially do not have it. Like, let, let, let's call a spade a spade. And again, because the worst cold-blooded murders, not when there's a doubt on the evidence and whatever, just the stupid technicalities, it takes forever and they have a mistrial and they this, overturn, overturn, overturn. And even when you could kill them, it's after 35 years, whatever. So this is another one of those cases. Curtis Flowers, in 1996, yes, 23 years ago, went into a department store that he mur- that he worked in, but he was fired from, he was disgruntled, came in there and mowed down, shot four people, killed four people. No one disputes the fact that the evidence is overwhelming. The... um. You know, physical evidence, the eyewitness evidence, it's all there. No one around denies that for a minute. 
Um, no one denies the fact that the jury pool, that, that there's no evidence that the pool of jurors who ultimately served, which were everyone except for one, was white, and that's their whole thing, but there's no evidence that they ruled through any animus. There were six trials. Six trials. Three of them, they couldn't land a conviction on, but on the main things, which were three other cases, they did get convictions in the trial court. And in two of those, the the Supreme Court overturned on technicalities. So even the state system, the due process is in there. And due process, and due process. It worked. The system worked, in my view, too much. Finally, on the sixth trial, the trial court was there, and it was fine, because the trial was on the fact that they struck one of the jurors that was that was racially animated, and the Supreme Court ruled, no, it wasn't. It was fine. It wasn't. And in comes the Supreme Court today and overturns that conviction, causing a need for a seventh trial if prosecutors are even willing to do it. Now, they used a lot of history, the fact that, well, you see, it was messy, there were a lot of different trials, but it's, it's just the opposite. That shows that the system worked. There's no reason to get involved in the states. And again, they're all in technicalities. So, as to the facts here, as Thomas says very clearly, the only clear errors in this case are committed by today's majority. Confirming that we never should have taken this case, the court almost entirely ignores and certainly does not refute the race-neutral reasons given by the state for striking right Right, that was the person who was struck, and four other black prospective jurors. Two of these prospective jurors knew Flowers' family and had been sued by Tardy Furniture, the family business of one of the victims, and also one of the trial witnesses. One refused to consider the death penalty and apparently lied about working side-by-side with Flowers' sister. Remember, this is a small town, by the way. One was related to Flowers and lied about her opinion of the death penalty to try to get out of the jury duty. And one said that because she worked with two of Flowers' family members, she might favor him and would not consider only the evidence presented. So they get up there and say, all the people struck were black. Yeah, but the ones that you're pointing to, there's a good reason for it. Now, this is a growing problem. There was a time when blacks couldn't get a fair trial in Mississippi. But now it's the opposite. To the extent that there's racial animus, it's like in places like Baltimore... Whites cannot, you know, a white police officer or even a black police officer cannot get a fair trial. And that's why they often go for a bench trial and don't have a jury. But the media makes it seem like there's still racism and it's only one way. And they have all this stuff, the witness, the victims, the jury, they're all white. So what? There's, it's all emotional. It's all melodramatic media stuff, as, as Thomas said. It's, it's BS, but you can understand why this pushes the buttons of all the sensitivities of these losers. And, I mean, Thomas just went on to say, this whole thing is crap. Today's decision distorts the record of this case, eviscerates our standard of review, and vacates four murder convictions because the state struck a juror who would have been stricken by any competent attorney. He accused the court of granting appeal, quote, because the case has received a fair amount of media attention. He charged them 
with distorting the facts because of entertain, entertainment melodrama. And he predicted it will result in, quote, the litigation and relitigation of criminal trials in the media to the potential detriment of all parties. Any competent prosecutor would have struck the jurors struck below. Indeed, some of the jurors' conflict conflicts might have been justified for cause strikes, right? And, um, you know, he notes how the standard of review is that you have to show that the state courts were clearly wrong. Thomas says they're not. The court majority discovers clear error based on its own review of a near decade old record. The majority apparently thinks that it is in better position than the trial court to judge the tone of the questions and the answers, the demeanor of the attorneys and jurors, the courtroom dynamic, and the culture of Winona, Winona Mississippi. He basically accused them at the end of, of race-based virtue signaling. Although, quote, although the court's opinion might boost its self-esteem, it also needlessly prolongs the suffering of four victims' families. Now, Gorsuch has been known to be very pro-criminal on a lot of things, but I think this is where his originalism does kick in, and he knows this is garbage. And he joined with... Thomas, right? He, meaning he didn't write a separate sentence. He just joined it, signed off all but part four. So what's part four? That's the part where Thomas says, and by the way, even if they were right here on the facts, the whole Batson precedent is garbage and unconstitutional. Um, Thomas said that Batson was a departure from previous century of jurisprudence. It's caused the courts to move its focus from the protections accorded to the defendant to the perceptions of a hypothetical structure. He accused Batson of disregarding Article 3's limitations on standing by giving a windfall to a convicted criminal who, even under Batson's logic, suffered no injury and of forcing equal protection principles onto a procedure designed to give parties absolute discretion in making individual strikes. So that part, Gorsuch wouldn't join. So you see what I mean? Even when Gorsuch is with Thomas, he's not, it's not the same thing. He's been good with the exception of the cases he's a problem with on criminal law. And this is a criminal law case he was good on. He's good, but not quite as good as Thomas. So, and, and again, notice they granted cert. They seem all too eager to overturn good state or lower federal court opinions. But when it comes to the most harmful things imaginable that the lower courts do, they don't, they don't take them up. Now, Alito has a two-page concurrence, very small concurrence. Alito has typically, in these cases, joined with Thomas. Because you would think he certainly would in, in criminal cases. He's gen generally very good. But you know what he said? He said, this case is a one of a kind. It's so unique. And he was like, oh, the facts are so crazy. There was just a history of all the racial problems. and the pro It was the same prosecutor that was proven to have done things. And the jury, he was so scared away by their facts. And they did a very good job. Like 49 of the 50 struck were black. But Thomas unpacked it. The, low, the state courts went through that already. And again, these are the very courts that showed a willingness to overturn the trial court in many other cases. But th this they finally upheld. Alito's 
so what I'm, the reason why I'm trying to point out is that normally uh, Gorsuch is bolder than Alito, but not as bold as Thomas. But Alito is better in criminal law. But this is one case where even where Alito is typically better, which is criminal law, Gorsuch's boldness kicked in and Alito is too scared. Reading through the lines in his heart of heart, Alito knows this is garbage. He's too scared. He's too scared of the racial overtures. Thomas doesn't care. But that's the problem. It's the same thing we have with the elected elected conservatives. We have with conservative jurors. They're too scared. This is precisely why they're not supposed to be elected. But again, it is true that rarely is Alito a problem on criminal cases, but it does give you a glimpse into what I think is going to be a problem with looking at this. It really, really gives me pause to think that even Alito would categorically overturn like so much of the election law stuff, the state infringement on states' rights in the Warren era, um, Ephraim v. Rusk, uh, and certainly Roe v. Wade. He'll definitely do it in a, a, a partially, which I don't think Kavanaugh and Roberts would do do even that. Gorsuch is still a question mark, but clearly won't overturn nearly as many as Thomas would. And that's what I mean by this. Finally, there's another case. And granted... <clears throat> Granted, I really haven't read most of it yet, but it's an immigration case. Now, it's not really immigration at its heart. It's a criminal statute because the illegal, it's not a deportation. He was convicted criminally on a gun charge. So it doesn't involve immigration that much, really. And here it was seven to two, overturning the 11th Circuit that ruled the right way. This time it was Alito dissenting, Thomas joining him, and Gorsuch, of course, didn't join. Because this is this is really the type of thing with criminal statutes that Gorsuch is very bad on. Um, see, the other the, this other case with uh, with Flowers wasn't so much criminal statute; it was um, just just the facts on the ground and and the constitutional view of that. But in criminal statutes, I mean, you know, Gorsuch is just very strict in the way he reads them. When I say strict, I mean strict against, you know, prosecutors and government. Um, so it's very frustrating. Where we have Alito, we don't have Gorsuch. Where we have Gorsuch, we don't have Alito. And then that's what I mean. But we all, you know, the common denominator is there is just one Clarence Thomas. So actually, Alito's dissent is longer than the majority opinion which is written by, um, who's it written by? Breyer. It was joined by everyone except for Alito and Thomas. So Alito wrote an opinion. And let me, let me just read this to you. Um, the court casually overturns the long-established interpretation of an important criminal statute, 18 U.S.C., 922G, an interpretation that has been adopted by every single court of appeals to address the question. That interpretation has been used in thousands of cases for more than 30 years. According to the majority, every one of those cases was flawed. So today's decision is no minor matter, and 922G is no minor provision. 
It probably does more to combat gun violence than any other federal law. It prohibits the possession of firearms by, among others, convicted felons, mentally ill persons found by a court to present a danger to the community, stalkers, harassers, perpetrators of domestic violence and illegal and illegal aliens. And that the case here is an illegal. Today's decision will make it significantly harder to convict persons falling into some of these categories. And the decision will create a mountain of problems with respect to the thousands of prisoners currently serving terms for 922 G convictions. Applications for relief by federal prisoners, current ones, by the way, a sentence under 922G will swamp the lower courts. A great many convictions will be subject to challenge, threatening the release or retrial of dangerous individuals whose cases fall outside the bounds of harmless error review. If today's decision were compelled by the text of 922G or by some other clear indication of congressional intent, what the majority has done would be understandable. We must enforce the laws enacted by Congress, even if we think that doing so will bring about unfortunate results. But that is not the situation in this case. There is no sound basis for today's decision. Indeed, there was no good reason for us to take this case in the first place. No conflict existed in the decisions of the lower courts, and there is no evidence that the established interpretation of 922G has worked any serious injustice. Um, and... You know, basically, this is a guy, a citizen of the United Arab Emirates, who is here on a student visa, and he um, he overstayed his visa, so he's an illegal. And the the defendant was saying he so he was. I'm sorry, I'm 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 losing my brain here. I'm getting very tired. Huh. Let me just take another drink. Um, uh, so the, the defendant's lawyers, so he says that his conviction, so he was convicted for firing. He had a weapon. He was discharging it. You're not allowed to own a gun if you're an illegal and he fired weapons at a, at a, um, shooting range. And his point was you have to prove that not only, um, did the defendant understand that he was in possession of a gun, but that he knew he was an illegal alien. That second part of it. And that second part is just made up. It's just not in statute. I don't have time to go through it, but you could read the opinion, a link to it, and Alito's dissent. And the bottom line here is, I want you to think about this powerful thought. I want you to understand why I am certain that the, Taking the court together, meaning the lower courts, the Supreme Court, Roberts and Kavanaugh shtick, even Gorsuch and Alito's shtick in certain cases, and the truculence of the other side of the left, put it together, we get a one-way street and a dead end. We have radical lower court opinions that are against not just other appellate courts, but Supreme Court precedent on immigration, rights to illegal immigrants, and they don't and, and the Supreme Court won't take up our appeal. You have cases where the lower courts are so concerned about gun violence that they violate gun rights to uphold unconstitutional statutes against the Heller decision, and the Supreme Court won't take, take our appeal. Here you have one of the only common sense bedrock constitutional gun laws that are enough of a state interest, governmental interest to bar you from owning a gun, 
an illegal alien owning a gun. And there's been thousands of cases based on this. There's been no circuit split. And suddenly, suddenly the court, not just the liberals, but everyone but Alito and Thomas are in a rush to take it up and overturn it. The Kavanaugh, who's obsessed with every opinion, by the way, I didn't mention this in his concurrence in the Bladensburg Cross case, every opinion he has like these nerdy, gratuitous concurrences. Like, and I just want to reiterate that this is totally in line with our precedent. No, we never want to reverse it. So he's very concerned about precedent. But this precedent doesn't bother him. And we've seen this a couple other times by him, too. Suddenly, they're not concerned about gun violence and gun laws, and suddenly they aren't concerned about overturning precedent. Folks, one-way street, dead end. Um, Alito just leaves it off. The majority today opens the gates to a flood of litigation that is sure to burden the lower courts with claims for relief in a host of cases where there is no basis for doubting the defendant's knowledge. The majority's interpretation of 922G, again, meaning that you have to prove that he knew of his illegal status, is not required by the statutory text, and there is no reason to suppose that it represents what Congress intended. And in this case, we have Gorsuch against us. Common denominator, there is only one Clarence Thomas against a C of hypocritical insanity from the lower courts up through all the other justices. Gorsuch is the next best. Alito is the next best on criminal cases. Kavanaugh and Roberts are schmucks. Folks, this is the truth on the judiciary you will not get elsewhere. Thank you for a terrific week. Great downloads. The numbers have been great on the show. I appreciate your support. Send these shows to 10 of your friends. We have so many other issues. I apologize. I haven't been able to get to. We'll try to get to next week. We'll try to get to Iran. So many other court cases I didn't get to even. You know, the case of a Massachusetts judge being allowed to overturn um, 200 years of precedent on illegal aliens and criminal law. We are not winning this. The people that are charged with getting better judges are problems themselves. If you look at Clarence Thomas and you look at the rest of the pack, you'll understand this. A lot of people tell me, well, Daniel, what do you want? There is no, how do you find Clarence Thomas's? You're right, that might be true, but don't lie to me and tell me you're fixing the courts then. Okay, so you don't have originalists. That's fine. Intermittently, they might do originalist stuff here and there, but that is not going to be an equal and opposing um, force for the left because, frankly, even if you had five Clarence Thomases, it wouldn't be an equal and opposing force because the left on the lower court level will just defy it and make it up. They'll defy the law and we feel that if we don't listen to them, we're defying it. So it's a one-way street. The minute we legitimize judicial supremacy is the minute we lost this battle. But ironically, we're not even playing the, quote, appoint conservative judges mantra any better than we have in the past. Have a great weekend. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.